what is the significance and the importance of understanding the the real story, the full story of, you know, let's just take the 1920s and what was happening with the Klan. We have this myth of, oh, that's just a Southern thing that happened a long time ago. But right, there's more to it than that. Well, what people are saying, and I concur, is that Black history is American history. It's our origin story. Yeah. And, um, and the idea that it's just this, if we look at it at all, it's just for one month of the year, overlooks depth of how it's embedded in what we are as a nation and who we are. Hi, friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. I'm here today with my friend Patricia Raybon, author of multiple award-winning books, uh, all of which sit at the intersection of faith and race. And uh, today's conversation is a little unusual compared to other podcast conversations because Pat has most recently written a mystery novel. We'll talk all about that, but I want to let you know that if you share this episode on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter by February 26th and tag me in the comments, you will be entered for a chance to win a copy of that mystery, Patricia's latest book, Double the Lies. That's the name of it. So today's conversation is a series of, yeah, reflections on faith and race, Black History Month, how Patricia ended up writing a mystery series, and also about the beauty and the truth that emerges from creative storytelling. I really loved this conversation, and I hope you will too. Patricia, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm delighted. Always great to see you, Amy Julia. Thank you. All right. So I'm here with my guest and friend, Patricia Raybon, who was one of the first guests ever on the Love is Stronger Than Fear podcast. I went back and looked And I think it was episode three of when I started actually podcasting in a way where I was having conversations with people and not just talking. (laughs) Because there I did a series of podcasts where all I did was talk. And then I started having conversations and you were guest number three. And the reason I invited you this now is like three years ago is because of the way in which you served as a mentor to me when I was writing White Picket Fences in particular. And at that point, I would have said, you know, Patricia Raybon is a Christian nonfiction writer writing about race and justice and faith. And here I am interviewing you because you've just come out with a mystery novel called Double the Lies. So (laughs) there's been a pivot in your writing career, although I think there's some through lines as well. And I thought before we talk about Double the Lies, this actual book that just came out, uh, could you talk a little bit about this move from nonfiction to fiction, from, you know, kind of memoir narrative to mystery? I'm just curious how you got from there to here. Well, while you were talking about that, um, I wanted to say, blame the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what happened. We were in isolation. We were, you know, isolated, vaccinated, all those things. Mm. And, uh, and in the world, we were going through one of the worst um, uh, dangerous pandemics in history. And so um, I said to my husband, um, there's nothing that could be worse than what's going on out in the world. So I'm just going to try to write something I've always wanted to write. Mm. Mystery. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. I tried 
and uh, we'll see what happens. Wow. And so here we are with this second book in uh, three years. Right. And the so, third one coming. Right. <laughs> so that's a, that's the over, uh, that's the umbrella overarching answer to how this happened. Um, but the other thing is, I, um, has to do with my love for the genre. I, um, I love clergy mysteries. Mm. I love mysteries in general because they, um, well, Walter mostly says um, mysteries um, invite us to take a uncomfortable look mm. at the world that we're living in. And then James Scott Bell, who also writes uh, thrillers and writes about writing, says that the business of the novelist is trouble. Hmm. So we were in this big trouble. Yeah. So there was, um, and there, there's a certain amount of um, courage that's required to even think about uh, the fiction format. That's what I've um, discovered. And so all of that collided and um, found me sitting here at my keyboard working on um, a little history mystery. And I want to get back to both of those things, the history and the mystery part. But before we even do that, will you talk a little more about the courage um, to write fiction? I'm really curious to hear a little bit more of what you mean by that. Well, what I didn't understand at all is that what works best in fiction is um, sass and um, audacity. Hmm. And readers want to read about a protagonist who has um, all that operating, especially in a mystery, and will um, be on common sense and, um, you know, good thinking, launch out to uh, nab a bad guy or a bad girl. Yeah. Have the guts to do it. And so for me, you know, soft-spoken, uh, introverted, I had to tap into uh, deep into something that's not naturally me to um, make it work. Yeah. Especially in the first book, which was, you know, um, just, I, I was really uh, the newbie novice and, uh, and I still am actually. But I was saying to um, my granddaughter who loves my high school granddaughter who loves writing too, the um, surprise that giving my protagonist um, bravery and courage would translate into my own life. Hmm. And so I would say to myself, well, if she can do that, then I can go on Zoom and talk to Amy Julia. Or <laughs> <laughs> That is so interesting. It was very, it, it, it continues to be a very surprising um, discovery for me almost every day as I write and as I promote um, this series. Right. And I should back up for a minute because Double the Lies, we've kind of mentioned this, but is the second of a, what will be a series surrounding um, a main character who's a really wonderful character named Annalise Spain. And I want to talk about her in a minute. Um, the first book is All That Is Secret, just for um, listeners, if they're looking all for that, it. All That Is Secret. And the um, publisher, Tyndale House, um, 
bought quickly bought that first book, but then they came back immediately and said, would you turn this or can you turn this into a series? So I went from me not even knowing if anybody would be interested mm. in one book to having to write three. Yeah. So that's, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I want to, I want to talk more about the, well, uh, before we get into Anna Lee and the history and the mystery of it all, which I do want to talk about, I'm curious whether the process of writing these books is significantly different for you than the process of writing your nonfiction books were, you know, have been in the past. Hugely different. Um, um, in the craft way, fiction writing is um, immersive in a way that even the best nonfiction, and I'm thinking of your book, White Picket Fences, which is wonderful. Mm. But uh, fiction is immersive in a, um, a deeper, grander, excuse me, way. Mm -hmm. um, Robert McKee, the film doctor, are you familiar mm -hmm. with it? No. Doorstopper of a book called Story. Okay. And, um, and so he says that um, we come to story not to escape life, but to find it. Mm -hmm. so that requires of the author this um, um, ability to um, generate this immersion in the writing so that the reader is um, from the beginning into the drama of the story. And, um, you know, I that does not describe my nonfiction writing at all. Yeah. It's, I, I think of myself as um, a uh, an honest writer, a transparent writer. Mm -hmm. And I also love um, quick writing. And in fact, my mystery novels are described as fast paced. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm sorry to um, be clearing my throat, but um, the, the fiction format requires this immersion into the narrative, not just describing things, but describing what they mean and how they feel and how and all you know all the sensory stuff. Yeah. And how they look and smell and um and so because re readers of fiction want that experience. They want to be um uh, they're not afraid of an eight hundred word not an um, eight hundred page novel. Mm -hmm. I, I, mine are not that long. <laughs> They'll uh, read that. Yeah. Because they love the immersion and then finish and say, when, when's the next one? It is so interesting. I love that distinction between escaping into a story and finding yourself or the world, right, in a story. And the thought that, um, and perhaps on some level, both are true <laughs> with the best stories where there is a feeling of like, escape in the in the best sense of that word and of finding of finding something that is true and real and it's so interesting to think about in your case this you know fictional character from a hundred years ago who you know perhaps has some parallels to your own life perhaps not I don't know yet um but that that could be a way of for any of us who read historical fiction in particular a way of finding ourselves in the past and I want to talk a little bit about that um, because I do think that, your book gives a way into some of the uh, topics around race and faith and the power of story and relationships that I've seen in your nonfiction work. Um, 
that show up in this book in a really different way. But before we do that, I thought it might be helpful for listeners to get a little bit of an introduction to this woman, Annalise Spain, and her story. So could you give us, you know, without giving anything away, give us a little bit of the basics that we need to know in order to talk about this book? Sure. Uh, well, well, first, regarding the books, um, it, as I it said, it is a history mystery set in Colorado in 1923 when the Klan ruled the state. Mm -hmm. So my little protagonist, Emily Spain, is a theologian who comes home to Colorado to solve the murder of her estranged father. That's book one. In yeah. book two, which just came out, Double the Lies, she um, is racing the clock to solve a different mystery before the Klan uh, frames her for the crime. Her backstory um, is... Um, uh, typically um, fiction-esque in its trope. And that is that she's a young black, she's a young woman who was abandoned at birth. Mm -hmm. I mean, now that's just, that's a, that's, that is, uh, that's so trope-ish <laughs> <laughs> that I'm almost embarrassed to uh, confess it. And it really reflects um, my, um, uh, novice status hmm. as a um, as a novelist. You know, I went with a trope that um, I knew, or I felt that I could um, use in in, my, in the debut fiction mm -hmm. that wouldn't frighten me or be uh, so challenging that I would get lost or wouldn't know what to do. So I went with that trope. People understand abandonment. Yeah. And so, and that's her, that's her background story that she was found in a, in the dirt in a, a mine shaft on the first day of her life. Hmm. And so the, the man who found her, a uh, unreliable kind of half drunk uh, miner uh, in Colorado of, uh, takes her and raises her. And so his unreliability challenges um, her in countless ways, but um, she finds um, a, a little place for herself in, and in that time in the world of the, the black church. Hmm. She's black, the, the, the man who's raising her is, is black and, um, and they live by default in an all black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a real neighborhood in Denver called Five Points. And so the ladies on on their in their neighborhood sort of help raise her, you know, giving her a piece of cornbread on the way on her way to school because they know she probably hasn't had anything decent to eat and mm -hmm. wash her clothes. And so that's it that's who she is um, but and manages to rise above that anyway. Yeah, and there's something in that that um, and she loves Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. So with um, you know what she knows about Sherlock Holmes in her heart, um, and what she knows about being black in her world, um, she takes on this task of trying to solve a murder when she's um, knows nothing about being a detective but she's willing to try. Yeah. 
Well, she is a really appealing character. Um, that's true throughout both books. I've read and enjoyed both of them. Um, but I wanted to hone in on the historical part of it, because as you mentioned, we're in Denver nearly 100 years ago. The Klan is a big influence. Uh, the Black Church is a big influence, um, especially, well, in both books, I guess. Um, and I'm curious about that decision to write a historical a history mystery like but why did you decide that but also what did you need to do in order to immerse yourself in the history of this time and place so that it could be as you know well rendered and compelling as it is well winners write history in fact you know we're having a big uh, we're seeing it, witnessing a big debate about that in the state of florida yeah you know, the governors uh, wanting to erase uh, that's how it feels to erase black history. And so um, knowing that and also growing up, you know, I've been black every day of my life in America. <laughs> and so I know what the official history says, but I wanted to write a history um, through the eyes of a young woman of color who um, only has two assets, her faith, which is on most, on many days, uh, not fully formed and wavering, and and her courage, and um, and I grew up in Colorado, and so I was aware of the Klan's um, prominence in the state in the during its second um, iteration in the early twenties. Yeah, a lot of people. I get so many notes from people, um, Amy, Julia, that say, you know, I never knew the Klan was in Colorado. Yeah. Um, that the Klan, Colorado had the uh, second highest Klan membership per capita in the nation. Yeah. And the first, uh, the largest Klan membership per capita was in Indiana. Well, that's, you know, just as a little interjection, when I was in high school, I wrote my, um, you know, junior U.S. history paper, mm -hmm. which was like a big deal at the time, 10 mm -hmm. pages or something. But um on the rise of the Klan in the Midwest in the 19 teens and 20s, um, you know, following Birth of a Nation, the film and yeah. and around all of that. And but even having done that, so I knew about the Midwestern aspect of the Klan, which was very surprising to me as a teenager. And I did not recognize the Colorado piece until honestly, um, much more recently, I think, actually, um, what was the film? Uh, Black oh, okay. Right. Um, Spike Lee's. Yeah. So, uh, but, but then your book really obviously, um, you know, plays out, gives a lot more details because it is set in that historical um, perspective. And I am curious about, yeah, just the, as you tie together, obviously you're writing the research that you've done, your own experience and our contemporary moment, as you said, of really wrestling with whether or not to be honest about our history as a nation, um, particularly as it pertains to Black Americans, but I think this is true in many, many ways. Like, what is the significance and the importance of understanding the the real story, the full story of, you know, let's just take the 1920s and what was happening with the Klan? We have this myth of, oh, that's just a Southern thing that happened a long time ago, but right, there's more to it than that. Well, what people are saying, and I concur is that black history is American history. It's our origin story. Yeah. And um, and the idea that it's just this, if we look at it at all, it's just for one month of the year, um, overlooks the, um, the 
the what the depth of um, how it's embedded in what we are as a nation and who we are. And so um, I, that was confirmed to, to me, uh, Amy Julia, when I started reading um, just some amazing resources, first at the Denver Public Library, the digital collection at the library with oral histories and all mm. of that is um, um, what's just a phenomenal resource. But the other thing is something called the Colorado Historic Newspapers.com, hmm. uh, which allows every paper that's ever been published in Colorado to be um, read sort of like a, a microfiche um, resource, but online, page by page. Wow. And so I could go into that um, resource and read the paper mm. from those years and those times. Yeah. The Rocky Mountain American, you know, the Klan the newspaper, which published once a week. Um, the Colorado Statesman, which was what we would call today the black newspaper in Colorado. Mm. And so to read in real time, the the, um, the Catholic Register, the, uh, the Jewish um, Daily News, all of those papers were um, confirming, in addition to the books on the Klan in Colorado, uh, Colorado what was happening on a day-to-day -day basis uh, as people wrestled with this um, powerful influence, political influence in the state. Uh, leaders from the governor on down were dues-paying members of the Klan, mayors, sheriffs, police chiefs, jury, jury, commis jury commissioners. Every county in Colorado had a Klan clavering. And then, you know, the Denver Public Library has all these photos from that era that uh, uh, show photographically, yes, this was happening. And here are, here are these people, you know, in their robes uh, and hoods by the thousands mm. in Boulder, in Boulder County, <laughs> you know, which we think of today as, you know, very progressive area. Right, right. And it's not that long ago. And I think, um, again, reading Double the Lies, there's no sense of I'm reading a book that is trying to teach me my history. There right. is a sense of the that exactly what you just described, that day to day, whether it's the fear that Annalie experiences at various points of um, I might truly be in danger in terms of my actual life, right, because of this clan influence, but also just the um, degradations and slights and am I going to be allowed into a public space or not only if essentially a white gatekeeper decides yes or no. Um, there's an example of a man who gets um, beaten after giving a white, a black man who gets beaten after giving a white woman a taxi ride, which she has insisted upon because she wants to demonstrate that she's fine riding in a car with a black man. And it's like, but that doesn't, he's, he's not okay with that because it gets him beaten up. Right. I mean, and uh, killed. And so there's, I think you do a, a great job of just weaving in what I can imagine from what you've just described, little snippets of that daily life that were reported on at the time. Well, the nature of, uh, thanks for mentioning that, because the nature of um, racism in America is that it's very casual mm -hmm. and very 
So it is day. So I get, I um, wrote it that way because that's been my experience. And um, and so Annalie can go from um, at one point um, talking with the president of um, one of the biggest banks in the city to um, being um, insulted at a ticket counter in a movie theater. Yeah. That's just what happens every, it's part of how the culture works uh, with regard to bigotry. And so um, I, when people sometimes ask me, how much of Anna Lee is you? Mm. Um, um, I used to say that, you know, I worked hard for her to make her her own self. Um, and then I read that um, Faulkner, I think it was Annalise, said that there's a piece of the author in every character of any book that they write. So I'm sure that's true. And certainly in her, for her, the piece of me that's in her story is uh, that I uh, tried anyway to um, deliver is that under very uh, intimate understanding of what bigotry feels like on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. I, I I mean, I don't know if love is the right word, but I really appreciate the word. Um, I, I wrote this down, the one you just said it, racism in America is very casual because I think that is one of the challenges in trying to talk about or undo the pernicious reality of racism. Um, obviously, some of the challenge is just the historical and systemic aspects of it. But I think another challenge that I haven't put in these words before is that sense of this is casual. And so it can be, oh, there was one ticket counter person who wouldn't let you have a ticket. Oh, well, right? Like that, that sense of it's so slight or you know, around the corner. And yet, again, when you live with a character through her daily life and see how those are ever present in every moment, and she's not wallowing, she's not, she's just being smart and careful and doing what she needs to do. And yet, there is such a sense of restriction in what she's allowed to do and who she's allowed to be and how she's allowed to go about her life. And so, um, and of course, this is what the best fiction does, right? It puts you, I mean, I, as a white woman from Connecticut in, you know, 2023, still get a sense of what it feels like mm -hmm. and how that quote unquote casual racism is unbelievably oppressive and unjust, right? I mean, you still get a, a sense of the feeling of that because of walking through that day-to-day -day existence um, with Annalie. So I just, I appreciate the way you put that. I think that um, is something your book really does succeed in in providing a reader, uh, which is not even the center point of, of the novel, it, but it is an experience you receive as a reader. I guess what uh, the point being that um, that daily insult that so describes the life of um, not being white in America isn't just iso it's not isolated, and right. so it's hap it's happening to er everybody who's not white every day all the time. Right, and so that happens. But the other thing is I and I think about this all the time, um, Amy Julia, is that the um, the challenge of it 
um, stirs up in people the need to respond in any way that one can, in my case, in a creative way. And I think in the, in the, um, in oppressed communities, you do see a level of um, creative energy and effort that maybe um, wouldn't be there if you didn't, if you weren't fighting it every day. So I have no idea of knowing if that had not been my experience, if I would still at my age, still be doing this work. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband and I had an interesting discussion recently. I said, you know, am I supposed to just keep doing this? Right. Uh, um, I talked to um, an agent of, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, it was <laughs> Francine Rivers, who's a uh, Christian novelist. Yeah. Her agent came up to me at, um, actually, it was the Christie Awards because um, the book won won a Christie Award, mm. <laughs> which really surprised me. But anyway, I had said during my acceptance speech, which I didn't know I was going to have to make, <laughs> <laughs> that everybody there was so much younger than me. And so she came up to me afterwards and said, but this is the this is your time. Mm. You, you know, you have a few years under your belt and um, don't basically she said, don't stop. You know, this is there's whatever you know to say. You can do that now because mm. you don't have anything to prove. Right, right. I'm curious too about that sense of creativity and generativity that comes out of a place of, um, yes, oppression. it is out of a place of oppression, right? And the casual racism and the everyday sense of it. But I think there's also, I don't know if these things do link together the way I'm wondering if they do. But as I think about whether it's, Black History Month or just Black History more generally, of course, there is the story that goes back to, you know, before our nation was even um, officially founded, right? The story of oppression and enslavement that has continued in various forms to this day. Mm -hmm. There's also a story of triumph and creativity and celebration and beauty and wisdom and faith and artistic expression and I mean, just so much that is just so rich and beautiful that has come out of the Black community, um, which I think also shows up in your book, especially when it comes to the role of the Black church. Um, Anna Lee shows her own sense of just creativity with words, creativity with her life. But um, I just wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, that they're I don't think they're opposing at all. I think they're very interrelated, that history of oppression and you know horror and a history of wisdom and um celebration and beauty uh, yeah i'm just curious if you can speak to that a little bit i think it says um well for those of us who are believers i i think certainly we would say that it speaks to um the uh presence of god and even the dis the lives of the disinherited, you know, if you mm -hmm. know, uh, mm -hmm. Thurman, Thurman. yeah, that what should should have killed us all, uh, in fact, um, turned us to um, the only all who could lift us out of that with um, 
And then let us, in, while we're doing that, start singing. Mm-hmm. You know, only God. Yeah. In the in the black church, we have we we often say, talk about something that's negative, and then the phrase is "but God." Mm-hmm. And people will start to quote um, those places in the Bible where uh, you know, with Joseph, for example, um, and uh, his situation in Egypt, uh, and then there's there are those words "but God," right? And so we live, we are but God people, mm-hmm. but for God. Yeah, uh, so what I'm saying, um, none of those, none of what has come out of the community, I don't think, uh, would have happened. And so it points people, and a lot of the black, in, in our country, a lot of that creativity um, is associated with the church in yeah. terms of ritual singing and preaching and, and all that. Um, and so those creative expressions then overtly and directly point people to a God who is uh, inspiring that. So that's, you know, a churchy thing, a churchy answer. Yeah. But there is something in that, um, that in the, in the oppressed, in the disinherited, um, there's, um, uh, some kind of uh, a golden rescue that helps people find a way creatively to be creative as they're climbing out of it. And I wonder too about that sense of, um, just seems to me that in order to connect to that which is the most true good and beautiful, right? The That sense of who God is and how God operates in and among humans. Mm-hmm. Some measure of vulnerability and dependence is necessary. And yeah. I don't mean by that, that we are letting go of um, kind of self, of a sense of like self-awareness or confidence or ability, but there's still a sense of we need each other we need God and all of this stuff on the surface that seems so important can disappear in a moment's notice. It is not guaranteed. And we've seen it go away. We've seen how much it does not actually satisfy. And there's a, there's a real, um, yeah, again, I think creativity, beauty, true joy, a depth to that experience that, um, seems to be part of why sometimes out of that experience of um, oppression and being just overlooked, you know, just because there's the, there's kind of the overt oppression, but then there's also the passive invisibility. Yes. And yet in both cases, when we can tap into that place inside, not just us individually, but us also as a community and as a people, Um, that is true and that is seen by God and that is called forth by God. I think there's, again, I mean, you look at whether it's music or literature or um, ideas or, you know, we can just keep that list going, uh, whether it's the Black church or um, kind of Black history more broadly. I think we see a lot of that, that truth and beauty and goodness that really speaks from the soul to the soul um, and that is not on the surface. So, um, if that's true for a people who 
you know, were enslaved for hundreds of years. Um, that truth then can be um, extended to everybody because nobody's nobody's life is not without hurt, some pain, some hurt, something. Yeah. And so what the um, the black experience in America says to um, everybody else is um, look for a way anyway to um, redeem that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and um, you know, sit down at your keyboard or, you know, uh, at your piano or what, whatever it is mm -hmm. and make your music. And uh, because the world needs it. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the thing that's really uh, surprised me when, when people, well, a couple of things, um, Amy, Julia, people will say, oh, I can't wait. You know, I, I, I've enjoy, I enjoyed this so much. I can't wait for the next story. But the other thing is, um, I keep hearing people say, I'm rooting. I can't wait for the next story. I'm rooting for Anna Lee. Mm -hmm. They're, they've, um, are invested yeah. in a fictional world, in a fictional character. And they're saying, I want more because I want to root for her. And I, you know, that does something for me to mm. root for her. I'm curious, just as we kind of turn towards the end of this conversation, I'm curious about the mystery aspect of the work that you've been doing, because, you know, you could have, and I know you've spoken a little bit to this, but you could have decided to just write a, a piece of historical fiction, right? Um, that did not involve the kind of becoming a detective mystery aspect of things. And is there anything particular to mystery writing that either drew you in or that just felt like this is the only way this story gets to be told? Um, it's the my favorite genre because, and always have been, I mean, I'm a Nancy Drew <laughs> girl, uh, that, going that far back. Yeah. And, but now I think I always love the mysteries because they, uh, because a problem gets resolved mm. and justice is done. Right. Um, and that wasn't what, that wasn't my experience. Um, even as a young child, seeing how the world operated. Mm. And so I'm pretty sure that's why I loved. Um, and then the puzzle of it, you know, I just loved all that part of it. Right. The thing that amazes me um, now that I'm writing them is um, how something that will get written in chapter three or four or something will reveal why it matters, reveal itself to me why mm. it matters 20 chapters later. Right. <laughs> and so there's something, and this is how I say it, uh, ex explain it or speak to it, um, Amy Julia. I, I will say that the story was already written. God has already written every story. That's mm -hmm. I'll say that. Yeah. That's, and, my, and then the author's job is to sit down and take the of it because otherwise I'm not smart enough to know 
why these puzzles end up working the way they do. In this, in the book, Double the Lies, I can remember uh, the moment when I realized um, how the how the deed was done, mm. and I thought, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> <laughs> and were you already writing at that point? Yes. So I wrote two books as a pantser, and, and your audience probably knows what that means. And, and there are two buckets that fiction authors fall into: the plotters, and those are those who, those are authors who plot every minute of the book okay and the pants is right by the seat of their pants <laughs> so the first two, and Stephen King's a pantser so everybody says well Stephen King's a pantser then uh, but it is it, what it is is writing to discover that's what yeah. now I, I didn't know that at first. right so um I but it's harder it's exciting but it's harder so for the third book um, it was due pretty quickly. So I, I sat down and wrote out the plot, but I still found it exciting. And there were still things I discovered, including the the uh, the how. And I, just, I thought, oh my goodness, of course. But I didn't see it at first. And I've heard that not only, I mean, I don't actually know many people who I've spoken with who are writing mysteries, but in terms of fiction in general, and even in terms of music, people who are like, no, this was given to me. Like it was my job to write it down or to yeah. sing it out or whatever, but it came from somewhere else um, and in, in a kind of mysterious way, right? Like even for people who would not you know, claim to have a relationship with God, I hear them talking about that sense of this came from outside of me, uh, which I think is really, again, speaks back to that um, creative process as something that taps into something really deeply true about us as humans. Um, yeah. I have one last question for you. And I am wondering if you feel like there are things that mystery or fiction can do that either nonfiction can't do, or that it's just a lot harder for nonfiction to do. Like, what is it that, yeah, that, a, that mystery and fiction is able and we've spoken to this a little bit, but is there anything else you would say about what it's able to do? Well, a couple of things. It invites um, people who are willing to suspend disbelief. Mm. And that's a huge um, invite. Yeah. <laughs> and so for people who are, because I've met a lot of people uh, in, in these past couple of years who say, you know, good job, Pat. Um, but, you know, I really don't read fiction. You know, it's, you know, it's make believe or whatever reason there's certain can be a certain snobbery about it. Yeah. For those who are willing to lean into it, mm. that's one of the gifts that um, if you uh, suspend uh, disbelief, you're going to um, learn something out of the journey that's far greater than just the story inside the, the cover of, you know, the, the cover of this book. Yeah. And so that's, um, there, you know, and there, of course, we learn things from nonfiction books, too. You, you, from every book you've written, I've learned some wonderful things. Mm -hmm. There's something, for fiction, though, there's something else that's happening that uh, is, um, I, I don't know if uh, faith people would use the word magical, mm -hmm. but there's something in that that's um, um, available for people who are willing to take the journey. Mm. That's so beautiful. Thank you. And um, yeah, I really do. I'm just so glad I waited 
as you may know, um, I wanted to read the book just to decide, am I able to have a podcast conversation about a mystery, a history mystery? I knew I would like it because I'd read the first one and I liked it, but I've never tried to actually talk with someone who's written uh, fiction before, but I was pretty sure we could do it. And I'm really, really glad um, that I was able to just hear some of your process as well as all of these just really rich ideas, which I think, again, um, indicate some of the things that fiction can do that nonfiction might be a little too, I mean, I think about the um, is it Emily Dickinson, like tell the truth, but tell it slant, which, you know, nonfiction can do that too. But um, there is a sense of being invited into, on the one hand, a fun and playful story. I mean, there is a, a any mystery, there's some element of like, this is fun. We're solving a puzzle. We're figuring out a crime. And yet there's also something very serious and real um, that is able, as you said, to deal with so many of these historical themes and human themes and the menace that is very real um, in Annalise's life, but also in so many people's lives even today. And I'm grateful that we have had a chance to talk about that here. I am too. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh those who uh, hung around for the whole conversation. I hope they were um, blessed and inspired by it and found some joy in it. Mm, me too. I'm sure they were. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you. Thanks as always for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. Again, if you share it, this episode on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter by February 26th and tag me in the comments, you will be entered for a chance to win a copy of Patricia's latest book, Double the Lies. And I'd love to hear from you, so please do feel free to reach out. My email is amyjuliabeckerwriter at gmail.com with questions or comments or suggestions for guests. I always and also want to thank Jake Hansen for editing this podcast and thank Amber Beery, my social media coordinator, for doing all the other things to make sure this podcast gets out into the world. And finally, as you go into your day today, I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.